Welcome to Porter Wright's Antitrust Law Source. Good morning. This is Jay Levine, your host of Antitrust Law Source, and I am delighted to be joined with my colleague, John Carney, who is in Columbus. And uh, John is the uh, chair of our healthcare practice group and our cannabis law practice group. He is a uh, former three-term member of the Ohio House of Representatives, served as the vice chair of the Finance and Health Committee, the ranking member of the Insurance Committee, and um, we're delighted to have him here today. Good morning, John. Good morning, Jay. Thanks for having me today. Uh, my pleasure. How's it uh, out there in Columbus? I hope you're getting some nice weather. It's beautiful, actually. You know, this is the best time of year to be in Ohio. So uh, <laughs> I encourage all your listeners in D.C. to come and visit us. Well, today may not be the best day to entice them since uh, we're actually at 78, 79 degrees today, cloudless skies. So, But trust me, a few weeks ago, we uh, probably would have wanted to be anywhere but here. But we're delighted to have you today. And I, I guess we're going to start talking about kind of um, covid related legislation that that seems to be sweeping the country or at least proposals and there was uh, one recently um, um, at least passed in the house so without any further ado there was an immunity bill that was recently passed in ohio can you uh, tell us a little bit about what it is and what it purports to do Certainly. So House Bill 606, which the General Assembly has been working on since the beginning of the pandemic and was pushed by the business community, really there's kind of a multi-intent of the legislation. Given the fact that the General Assembly was aware that there were thousands of lawsuits with respect to COVID, there was a, a hope that they could help healthcare professionals as well as businesses and private entities avoid liability. And so they made a number of recommendations that really expand on healthcare immunity. So certainly to the extent that if you're a healthcare provider, unless you act with reckless disregard or willful and wanton intent, um, you essentially have immunity as it relates to providing care to individuals um, during the pandemic. And then the other piece of it is to the extent that you're a business, uh, the General Assembly recognized that typically businesses are, are not required um, when individuals come on their premises to be concerned about them being exposed to airborne viruses or other bacteria. And so the goal was really to say, look, the expectation is if you're a customer and you're going into a business, it's, it's on you to socially distance, to wear a mask, to keep yourself safe. We're going to provide, again, a qualified immunity to those businesses. And it really extends, you know, businesses, schools, universities, non-for-profit entities. I mean, it's, it defines person as the most ex expansive definition as you could mm -hmm. possibly imagine and says, again, unless there is willful or wanton or, or gross negligence, there will not be liability and, and essentially it creates a, a limit on that liability for those businesses. Let's just take them one at a time for a second on the healthcare part. So it's a qualified immunity from a liability, obviously not a medical malpractice or anything like that. Is this simply an immunity that you can't say that my nurse in the emergency room gave me COVID? So, yes, I mean, I think really it, it is more so about if you are responding to the, the uh, during the pandemic and you're providing care to somebody who has COVID-19, um, provided you're practicing in your scope of practice, I think it's going to make it very difficult, even if there's general negligence by the, mm. the individual healthcare practitioner, 
to be able to demonstrate that they had liability. So if you have COVID-19 and you are presenting and the physician or the nurse or the hospital commit some sort of negligence related to your treatment, based upon the language of the legislation, it would seem that you could use this as a shield. Interesting. Okay, so that is really more sort of the med mal type of action. But that that sort of begets the question. You know, I have several friends and relatives who are physicians in in a number of fields. And I know, at least early on, when the um, pandemic hit, and there was no elective surgeries. You know, their anesthesiologists didn't have a lot to do. And a lot of them were being essentially drafted to provide care in emergency rooms or whatever. Now, you had said, as long as you are within your discipline, but sort of what what exactly or how far does that, would that extend? Yeah, so uh, they do have language that essentially if you're practicing outside of your discipline, you, you could have liability. However, if you're doing so as a result of the emergency and you're providing emergency care in good faith, then you also essentially benefit from the qualified immunity. So, uh, because you're right, there's dermatologists and others who have been running right. ventilators. And yeah. um, again, I, I think as long as you have provided the service in good faith and you're responding to the emergency, you should be able to benefit from the qualified immunity language in the bill. Interesting. Okay. And that's for people sort of treating existing COVID. What about claims that you gave me COVID? Would that, you know, you, you didn't take the proper precautions, the, the nurse, the doctor or whatever, would there be qualified immunity for that as well? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I mean, the, the language really lays out that any injury, death, loss to person or property arising from the following, an act or omission of the healthcare provider and the provision of services, any decision relating to providing, withholding, or withdrawing those services, or compliance with an executive order of the huh. director of the Department of Health. And then, uh, you know, the bill defines disaster much more broadly than just the pandemic. I mean, it, it certainly is contemplating other disaster declarations by the governor where this language would apply, this bill would apply. So, you know, I mean, it, it lays out... So, COVID-19 in the bill, but it also references SARS, MERS. So there's there's other uh, airborne diseases that this would apply to as well. I want to ask you about the business aspect of the legislation as well. But before we get there, do you get the sense that, I mean, obviously none of us probably could have imagined what we're living through right now last year or, or anything like that other than the people who are guests for a living do these kind of threat assessments and, and thoughts. But now that we have gone through something like that, do you get the sense that in enacting legislation, whether it's Ohio or across the country, you know, we're presuming that, okay, hopefully, God willing, we'll, we'll be through this pandemic soon. There could be others that act similarly or, you know, maybe not as global or maybe some even as global. Are they trying to draft legislation because they now realize we have no idea what may happen in the future? Well, you know, with all due respect to the members of the General Assembly, typically, you know, this legislation is driven by outside interests. So the Ohio Chamber of Commerce, I think, was probably a significant drafter of the legislation. And so I think the the General Assembly in Ohio and certainly I think other state legislative bodies and the Congress, they're going to be responding to the business community saying, look, what are we supposed to do? We're following a CDC guidelines and people are still contracting COVID-19. And 
I think that's really where this came from. Certainly, I have a number of clients who have been doing all the right things. Right. They've got their they're socially distancing. They're having their employees wear masks. They've got hand washing stations, and there's still COVID transmission within the, the facility. Or people are getting COVID, and they don't know whether or not they got it at the business, or did they mm -hmm. get it at home, or did they get it at a restaurant, or, or where did they pick it up? So I, I think that's really one of the problems is it's very difficult to just pinpoint exactly where the transmission happened because there's so many cases in the United States that contact tracing isn't particularly effective right. um, when you have this many cases. Do you think, um, just going to ask you to put on your sort of wizard's hat and try to predict the future, do you think that at some point in the future we're going to have a more robust and effective contact tracing program? So I, I think it really comes down to getting our case numbers under control. I mean, I talk to a lot of uh, public health professionals and chief medical officers at hospitals, and one of the things they'll tell you is, until Americans start being compliant with wearing masks, socially distancing, not getting together in large groups with these super spreader events, you're not going to be able to contain cases like they have in other countries. I mean, the reason why contact tracing works is because you've brought your case numbers down mm. and you've isolated the individuals who have it. In the United States, we've taken a very flippant attitude to that. And you, you just have a number of people who all ages and demographics, I believe, um, who are essentially saying, I'm fatigued from doing these things. And so the case numbers in almost all your states are so high that you just don't have an ability to do it effectively. Um, I think at some point, hopefully we get there, certainly after we have a vaccine that's been administered, I think we'll be in a better position because less people will be susceptible once you get the vaccine and the booster for the vaccine. But in the near term in the United States, I think we're headed towards another spike as the weather turns colder and people start heading inside. Right. Yes. I'm notwithstanding how beautiful both of our respective states are right now. Uh, winter is coming and that's that doesn't uh, probably bode well for that. But that's uh, that's interesting. I, I'm just curious. I mean, I, nobody can predict the future, but, you know, I've always thought that one of the reasons that we as Americans don't seem to be quite as vigilant as other countries or whatever is. Partly because in our DNA is this, you know, sort of libertarian liberty, freedom. We don't like anybody telling us what to do. We don't like being restricted. We have that that this country was built on our personal uh, freedoms. I'm just curious, even once we're able to put in a, a robust or effective um, contact tracing program, do you think there will be a political will to do so among both legislatures and, and those who vote them into office? Well, I think that's probably going to be a state-by-state -state decision, really, because you, you've got different persuasions that are driving the politics in each state. I mean, if you look at national polling, over 70 percent of people are saying they think that we should be wearing masks. They, they think that we need to be socially distancing. We need to consider sheltering in place to the extent that, that we can get the, the virus under control. Even in other countries, you're having the same sorts of protests uh, about unlock us, let us go back to our normal lives. <clears throat> I mean, I read an article recently that basically said there is a, a physical response in the body when an emergency happens where you get this round of endorphins, whether it's a hurricane or a fire or a right. car accident or what have you. And you can sustain it for a little while, but you can't sustain it for months. And, you know, everybody gets to a point where that physical response to the emergency it wanes and you say, I'm over this. I cannot continue to do this. And, and as somebody who does healthcare law every day, 
um, and knows that we need to be doing these things. Even myself, I, I get to the point where it's like, I need to go on vacation. I need to travel. <laughs> I've got to get away from this. So I, I think that that's going to be something, you know, how long can we sustain our vigilance and, and can people uh, continue to be vigilant until we get past probably the first quarter of 21 where you're able to start rolling out a vaccine nationally. Right. Um, but even once the vaccine's administered, you know, what I'm hearing from the folks I talk to is you're going to need a booster on top of the vaccine. People can't expect that just because the vaccine comes around that all of a sudden COVID just disappears completely. Um, so uh, we're going to have to continue to be vigilant. Yeah, no, that that's true. It's funny that you, you, you talk about your COVID fatigue. My wife and I have been married for over 31 years, and I don't think we've ever spent this much time um, <laughs> under the same roof. And uh, often she tells me I need a business trip. Uh, uh, <laughs> So, uh, but I, I told her that's probably not happening for a little bit. Right. So well, we shall see. But okay, let's let's turn to the business side of the um, of the legislation. So that's basically I own a I own a business, a retail, a, a huge manufacturing entity, or a mom and pop grocer. Um, I, I guess it gives me qualified immunity as long as I'm doing what seems to be appropriate under the state or CDC guidelines. It gives me some protection um, in case my customers or employees uh, want to claim that uh, they got sick or something happened to them um, at work. Is that is that the gist of it? That's exactly right. I mean, essentially, you know, person is defined in the legislation to be corporation, business trust, estate, trust, partnership, association, a uh, school, a for-profit, a non-for-profit, a government entity, a religious entity, any state institution of higher education. So, I mean, it's like Sherwin-Williams paint. It is covering the earth as far as how it's defining person. So really anybody it applies to. And again, I mean, it goes back to the same standards as it does with respect to, to healthcare providers. I mean, willful and wanton activity, gross negligence is going to get you into trouble. Um, you know, we have a lot of discussions with our clients right now about should I have people signing these waivers? You know, I've got these yeah. these COVID waivers. And, and right now we're saying, yes, we're not totally convinced that it's going to be the shield that you want. But unfortunately, because this legislation, they're trying to pass it retroactively, which technically they don't have the ability to do and they don't have an emergency clause in it. You know, one of the things that your listeners need to understand is it's not going to become effective until December. And so if something happens between March when the emergency started and the middle of December, there's going to be a challenge about whether or not you can afford the benefits of the qualified immunity in this legislation. Some studies suggest that COVID infections could result in long-term respiratory or cardiac damage. If that's right, we're talking about a long tail in these claims, with plaintiffs indicating that they didn't discover it until they had the long-term injury from COVID. It's not clear whether HB 606 offers any protection for those sorts of claims after the immunity period is over. So, I mean, I know when we talked off the air, you, you expect there to be litigation about this legislation. I assume in other states, their legislations as well. The, the plaintiff's bar and labor unions, whatever, they're not, they're not going to take too keen to this. Right. Well, any legislation that passes, unless you have an emergency clause in it, it's 90 days until it becomes effective. In Ohio, they were not able to get the two-thirds vote in the House and the Senate to pass an emergency clause, which means that, uh, you know, since there's no appropriation in the bill, it takes 90 days for it to become effective. And so inevitably, I think you're going to end up in a situation where clearly there was COVID transmission between March and December in businesses. 
Um, and the business is going to say, well, there's House Bill 606 here. I've got this qualified immunity. I didn't act in a willful or wanton way. And the plaintiff's bar is going to say, well, too bad that one, you don't you're not afforded the benefit because even though the General Assembly said it was effective at the beginning of the emergency, you can't do that. And I think a lot of judges are going to say they're right. I mean, this is how bill becomes a law. And it has been for a couple hundred years. And so I think judges are, are not going to buy into, well, you tried to make this bill retroactive. Well, you don't have the power to do that. So I think there's going to be a lot of litigation around that point, especially with any transmissions that happen before the middle of December. I, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but feel compelled to ask it anyway. What about at the federal level? Do you get any sense that at least post-election there may come down a bill to cover the country in some sort of qualified immunities? You know, I think the fact that they were not able to put together another COVID bill when clearly there was consensus on doing something uh, tells you the likelihood that something's going to get done during lame duck in the Congress. I mean, I, I think it's highly unlikely that the House and the Senate are going to be cooperating. And I think given the number of absentee ballots that are going to be rolling in, that we're probably still in election mode well into, you know, the middle part of December, right? But maybe right. even December, we're still in election mode. Um, and certainly my experience with other elected officials when it's an election is there's not a lot of getting along during that period of time. It's very political. Right. So if something is going to come down, it probably won't happen until after uh the inauguration and, and the new Congress is seated. But uh, I guess we'll have to see what the makeup of everything is in D.C. before we can uh, figure out whether there's a likelihood of, of something coming down um, uh, from the federal government. From a business person's perspective, okay, so you're doing everything you can. You may have this qualified immunity that may work backwards, probably not. And um, you're getting people to sign waivers. I mean, I haven't seen this yet. Have you seen anybody asking customers to sign waivers? So I have seen it in the behavioral health space where mm. schools who are having clinicians come in to treat students, they're asking the, the clinicians to give to the guardian uh, a waiver that says that they understand that COVID-19 is mm. you know, easily transmittable through the air from person to person. And that by agreeing to see the clinician, you're recognizing that there's a, a possibility that during those activities, transmission could happen. I mean, in fact, you know, in that instance, it's the school district who's saying, we want you, the behavioral health provider, to make sure the guardian signs off on this or else we don't want you to provide the service. Interesting. Um, and that's, you know, even with this legislation having passed, I mean, We've seen it in nursing homes as well. Um, you know, obviously COVID has really gotten into nursing homes and caused havoc. And so again, we've seen waivers in, in the nursing home space. And I, you know, I've certainly put them together for a number of businesses. My overarching suggestion though, to all of these folks is you wanna make sure that you have all these other protocols in place so that if anybody questions us, we can say, we were asking them to fill out, you know, an app or a form that asked about, do you have any of these conditions? You know, a cough, or we're going to do temperature checks on you. We're going to require you to wear a mask. You got to wash your hands right when you walk through the door. We're going to have social distancing signs up. We're going to put blocking up. 
again, I think that puts the business in the best possible position. We can say, mm -hmm. look, we did everything that was advised by federal and state and local health officials. And, you know, I mean, the, as I've always said to my clients, you're not responsible for COVID-19, but you are responsible for your response to COVID-19. Sure. And as long as, as your response is aligning with what those health professionals are telling us are best practices, I think we're going to put ourselves in the best possible position to defend a lawsuit. But as long as you open yourself up for business and COVID's still out there, there needs to be an expectation that you could get sued. Right, right. Well, I mean, that's just the nature of, you know, cost of doing business, I, I suspect. And, you know, whether there's COVID or not, there's always something that, you know, you, you can do. You can do the best you can, but you can always get sued. Um, what about other types of legislations do you see coming down? Obviously, there's a lot been a lot of talk among some states about enacting new price gouging legislation or other consumer protection type statutes. Do you see a new wave maybe after the elections of these statutes coming down? I'm not sure about I think each state will do something similar to Ohio, um, especially if they have a Republican leaning General Assembly and governor. I, I think, you know, these immunity sorts of bills tend to be the province of chambers of commerce. Um, they're, they're typically opposed by the trial bar. And, you know, chambers of commerce typically are more supportive of Republicans and the labor unions are typically more supportive of, of Democrats. Same with the trial bar. That's not totally true these days, but, uh, you know, right. I think that's fairly true. So I think from state to state, if you've got a Republican legislature and governor, you're going to see an immunity bill that looks like this. I don't think the Congress will pass one with divided government in, in the Congress. I think the Democrats in the House are very unlikely to go along with an immunity bill. But I, I think you will see other COVID-related legislation moving forward that probably is more curtailed to specific demands of the interests in the state that have persuasion over those in power. And so I'm expecting to see quite a bit of that from state to state, not so much from the federal government. I think most of us right now kind of see the federal government as more at a standstill oftentimes, whereas the state governments are moving bills through. And I think that's really going to be where the activity is happening. That makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, I know in, in sort of in my practice in antitrust and consumer protection, you see sort of even state AGs getting a little bit frustrated with Washington and, you know, starting to bring their own, you know, lawsuits um, via the, either price gouging or antitrust and just feeling that we've got to move something on. And, and there was talk of a federal, you know, federal price gouging statute never materialized. And so I think states are going ahead and trying to enact their own. Well, you know, on the price gouging side, I would, you know, caution a lot of healthcare providers that I do think that the Office of Inspector General is going to become interested hmm. in a number of things that appear to be hot business commodities right now in light of the pandemic. I mean, I, I think you are seeing some cottage industries that are popping up like testing. Um, and I think that there is going to be a focus on whether or not these folks complied with federal and state regs around setting up collection sites and processing samples. And, you know, you've already seen a backlog on testing. And so I think that's where I would expect regulators to be taking a close look and state attorney generals for that matter whether or not people were just profiteering on the, the crisis as opposed to providing health care services. Because there's been a lot of money that's become available 
for healthcare providers who are responding to the pandemic. The CARES Act not only gave money early on, but then it, it sent money to the states, and the states are now administering money to a number of healthcare providers who have responded to the pandemic. And I think there's going to be scrutiny around, okay, well, who got this money? Was it duplicative? Did they get PPP money? And they got this CARES Act money, and how did they use it? And right. so, you know, I would caution anybody who's getting money from the federal government, whether it's through these loans or it's through these grants, that those who are pro who are providing care in response to the pandemic, just to make sure that they're working with their legal counsel to ensure that they're complying with the requirements. Because oftentimes the requirements, frankly, aren't very well written. It's not right. very clear. <laughs> Um, and so you need to document what you're doing with the money so that you're in a position if somebody audits you to say, this is how we spent the money. This is the direction you gave us. We didn't use it for duplicative purposes. That's going to be pretty key, I think, as we move forward. Cool. Well, actually, I'm going to use that as a segue for our next podcast, um, which will be on healthcare. But uh, for now, let's we'll hold it here. And uh, I encourage everybody to listen to our next podcast where John will Porter Wright, Morrison Arthur LLP, offers uh, this content and, for informational purposes only as a service uh, for our clients and friends. Future, but, this content uh, thank is you, John, not intended for as legal us, advice for uh, any purpose, and you should not consider it as such. And very it does not necessarily and, reflect uh, the views of the firm as to any particular matter or those of its clients. All rights reserved. Really appreciate it.